The Nordic countries did very well during the modern era. Their secret? An approach to education called Bildung. Metamodernity is a possible future where we take the best from the past and the present, locally and globally, and turn it into a meaningful future for all. My name is Lena Rachel Anderson. Welcome to Nordic Metamodern. You remember when you were younger, when you used to go for a drive in the countryside, you used to have insects all over the windshield and now it's blank, clean. You don't even need to wash your car anymore. Welcome to Nordic Metamodern. My name is Lena Rachel Anderson and this time I have invited a scientist who has really taken the deep dive into the crisis that we're in as a species. Her name is Jeannie Sevan Miklos. Welcome Jeannie. I'm really happy to be here. Good to see you. Um, but before we get into all the disasters and the uh, collapsology, I guess you're calling it, um, because we're going to get into how, how bad things really are. And you are one of the people who really see all the darkness, but you do also bring some light. And that is why I, I have invited you. Uh, but before we get to that, could you please just uh, share with us who you are, what you do and why you're doing it? Yes, uh, I'd love to do that. And uh, I'd just like to mention that I didn't come up with the term collapsology. That's actually an official term in France, which is relevant because I am actually French. Uh, I was born uh, in Chantilly in the 1980s. Um, and my family comes from the northern part of France, uh, what we call the Ch'ti, uh, if you are familiar with French cinematography. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a part of France that is known for its heavy industry, coal mining, etc. And that is actually quite relevant of my own family um, because my grandparents were factory workers uh, up there near um, Seclin, Roubaix, Tourcoing, those areas of France. And um, I have kind of witnessed uh, the progress of my own family between the working class and the middle class has been kind of uh, concomitant with the, the progress of human civilization and capitalism, et cetera, over the last 50 years. So this, this story of how our civilization evolved and where it's heading next is also very personal to me. Um, I left France when I was six years old and moved to the Netherlands, uh, which is why you don't hear a French accent <laughs> when I talk in English. Um, I had a very cosmopolitan education. Um, you could say, well, it was a kind of Montessori Dalton system. And then I went on to study what you could call liberal arts. I had a very building education in that sense. Um, and I spent a lot of time traveling the world and discovering the world. Um, I graduated as a human rights lawyer from the Kent Law School in the early 2000s. And I began my career in the uh, non-governmental sector, in the non-profit sector. Uh, and I did some missions in uh, Togo, in the Caribbean, in Southeast Asia. But I became quite quickly disenchanted with the non-profit world uh, because the way it was being run, whether it was big or small organizations, I felt like it was already way too late down the line of the problems that were happening. So when you're doing development and humanitarian work, you're trying to fix the problems at, at the end of the line. And that can be very disheartening. You know, you're coming into a war zone after the war. Um, and I realized, actually, I'd rather be working on the other end of the problem. and 
ask questions like, how do we stop wars from happening in the first place? Uh, and I came to the same conclusion, I guess, as the, the Nordics came to in the 19th century, which is you have to start with education. So I quit my human rights career and, and began a career in education and did my PhD in education philosophy at Erasmus University. Uh, the desire to work in the nonprofit sector was still always there with me. Uh, so one thing you should know about me is that I have a black belt in karate. Uh, and I know that I have not challenged it, but I, but I know that you do have it. Uh, and I actually had this intuition that we could use the vast networks of martial arts throughout the world as a way to um, enhance nonprofit work and also circumvent a lot of the cultural conflict issues that you get in nonprofit work. And so I started my foundation, the Fair Fight Foundation in 2015 to empower girls from underprivileged communities by using martial arts as the vector. And we currently have three programs, uh, soon four running in India, and we have three programs running in Southern Africa and Zimbabwe and Zambia. So we've been doing that work for seven years. And um, as a scholar these days, I'm an assistant professor at the School of Behavioral and Social Sciences at Erasmus University. But as we will discuss in this podcast, my field of interest is very wide indeed. Um, and education is also their kind of the vector to talk about what the situation was, is with the world and, and how we can address it. And the first time I, I met you was actually in the Netherlands. Uh, my colleague and I, uh, Thomas Bjorkman, were working on the uh, the book, The Nordic Secret, and we had this little round table with people from education and building in the Netherlands. And, um, and we were exploring also the, the meta-modern possible future. And uh, and one of your colleagues uh, was not available to, to participate in our meeting, and he sent you instead. And that was actually the first time because you made a, a presentation about Apollo Fair. Um, and his very active pedagogics and, and pedagogics as a political tool. And I guess I had heard about Fair before, but I had never really been introduced to his work. So I, I'm, I'm really grateful for, for you teaching me that. Um, and it, it opened my mind to uh, education, pedagogics and activism and the how to change societies through uh, education and from the Nordic perspective, but I hadn't thought of it uh, from the Latin American perspective. And I find it interesting that that we can, of course, learn from around the globe with regards to how to how to turn uh, education into uh, and pedagogics into activism and a, a force for change. Um, so uh, how did how did you where did you find him and that that part of your work? What was your path into into that work, and then we'll get to the collapsology. And I would also like to hear about the French part of it, because um, those of us who don't speak French have no clue what's going on in France, and and I think we should uh, know that. So, but but Frere and the pedagogics first, please. Yeah. So as I said, I I came from a, a very Catholic, very working class uh, family. I. Uh, and I like to tell, I like to share with you a story that kind of perfectly reflects kind of the hinge in which my my father's generation found itself. When I was born, my father was working in a factory 
when I was six, our life changed when he was offered a job in a corporate uh, American environment. And suddenly, boom, the middle class happened. <laughs> and um, I used to be kind of dragged to church on Sundays with the promise of McDonald's as a reward afterwards. And I think that's just the perfect reflection of growing up in the tension between this traditional Catholic upbringing and the American corporate middle class promise. And I just think it's a funny anecdote to kind of illustrate the fact that I grew up with very conservative, pro-business, you know, pro-corporate, views. And um, when I was 18, and I got the my little voting card, it's in France, you have a little uh, card where you get stamped when you vote. Um, I was voting for very conservative parties, uh, because that's what you did in my family. <laughs> don't, don't you dare mention socialism at the dinner table. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that's not if you want dessert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I went to study in the UK uh, part-time. I, w- I was uh, partly studying in Sciences Po Lille in France, which is um, a grande course. It's one of these schools you get into with a with a competition, an entry test. And that was a double degree. It was one of the early European double degree programs with uh, the University of Kent. Uh, and I was doing this work also. So this is where I was starting my international relations and human rights uh, studies. And little by little, these viewpoints that I had accumulated over 18 years of this kind of Catholic conservative milieu began to be uh, tugged at by reality. I started to experience what you call cognitive dissonance in realizing that the world is not as simple as Catholic conservatism (laughs) would try and make you believe. Uh, I remember one shocking experience is my first trip to Africa, uh, which I guess was the first time I was confronted with uh, real rural poverty. Um, and then there was the house of the bishop there, and it was like a palace. And there were kids outside who didn't have clothes, and people were dying of AIDS, and there were funerals week in, week out, and the bishop lived in the palace. Uh, and I, I think that that was the the start of the end <laughs> of the road for me in Catholicism. Um, I also began to 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 read and in, encounter different people, but I guess the real the real change for me was an encounter with a Danish professor uh, somewhere around oof, 2011 or 2012, something like that. Um, I, I guess I was politically agnostic for a few years, but then I met this. Uh, his name was Professor Henning Selling Olsen. He was the one of the founders of Roskilde University in Denmark, uh, one of these super progressive uh, critical pedagogy universities. And we were supposed to have a one hour interview. We ended up talking four hours. Uh, and he just basically put the words t- to the way I had been experiencing the world. And that was on coming out of that interview, which was actually more like a conversation with him. I, I just felt like my mind had been blown and I I had to read more I had to encounter more so I was in the UK at the time and there was a another professor a professor of engineer actually from Albor University who said have you read Paulo Freire and I said no I have not (laughs) 
So I picked up a copy of Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and I had been meaning to just read the introduction just so I would have something to say about it in my PhD, but I opened the book and then I didn't close it until I was on the last page. <laughs> and I just, yeah, it just really kind of all fell into place. Like definitely the dissonance had been building up year in, year out there, but I just, I read the Pedagogy of the Oppressed there in the Templeman Library of the University of Kent. and. I just, it put the words to what I had been experiencing in my own life, in my work, in, in the developing world and those those issues. Suddenly, wow, there it was, pedagogy of the oppressed. And the fact that education as we do it today, or, or as it was being done in Brazil then, as the majority of education being done today, reproduces the system that is planet killing, humanity killing, freedom killing. And it is a, a system that has a love of death rather than a love of life. Um, and I suppose, even though it is written from an a atheistic standpoint, and even though I have uh, kind of left uh, the, the church and the church environment. I think in the concept of love, and you see this also in Simone de Beauvoir, in the concept of a love and a love of humanity, it's like um, you can see a lot of Christian values in there. Uh, a lot of these, these values of love thy neighbor, um, except it's not just love thy neighbor as a kind of essence of thy neighbor, but love them as a free person. So I definitely, I definitely don't feel a major break in my value system. I feel actually that Paulo Freire, Simone de Beauvoir, existentialism and critical pedagogy are truer to the original values of Christianity than a lot of Catholic conservative, um, you know, ways of living life. Right. So if I'm, I'm going to uh, add a little bit of, of, uh, positive spin on religion and and the environment and critical yeah pedagogy and and living in sort of a in opposition to the the general economic way of thinking <clears throat> a lot of people who are religious have the community and the strength and some kind of moral backbone or narrative that is counter to to the to the mainstream narrative which is economic today and and where everything is about growing the economy um and um and so I, I i absolutely see that that you can have this religious heritage as part of the narrative or or the background that you that you bring to your agenda and and still you know connect with it um so so i can absolutely follow that so if we're going to look at uh collapsology or collapsology i i guess it's called in in french uh, would you prefer to, to begin there or just to share with us what kind of mess we're in or does it somehow go together? And and uh, please mind that those of us who do not speak French will probably not know any of the people you're going to refer to or whatever is going on. And I find this highly interesting is, is also part of uh, reaching out to the world to uh, to hear about what, what goes on actually rather close to where you know, we are, and because of the language barrier, we have no idea speaking as a European now. So um, your choice, where to begin? Ah, the French. <laughs> the French and their chronic inability to speak any other language than French. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> yes. Um, 
whenever I walk into a bookshop in France, it's quite astonishing to me that usually there is a, a special display for Collapsology. <laughs> so you'll have like a like a cardboard display with 15 Collapsology books on there. Of course, there are also climate denial books published like right alongside. Uh, so it, please don't make the mistake of thinking that everyone in France is perfectly aware and perfectly receptive to this. And in fact, um, looking at even members of my own family who are still very much in the working class environment, um, right wing, far right wing vote and climate denial also go hand in hand in France and is very much associated with a kind of white working class in decline um in kind of those parts of France where they are the most prominent but um certainly the idea that civilization in the world as we know it could fall apart very very soon has been quite prominent in French discourse in French mainstream discourse for at least 20 years um and I will try and pronounce some of these names slowly <laughs> uh the most prominent people who have been advocating this viewpoint for 20 years are Jean-Marc Jancovici, who is an engineer, uh, Pablo, um, Pablo Servin and Raphael Stevens, who are also agro-engineers, so specializing in agriculture, Yves Cochet, who was a former minister uh, in the socialist government, most of them, I will say, are more in the life and technical sciences. Uh, there is a, a lack of psychologists and humanities people in that field in France. Um, I have always been quite interested in the life sciences and in physics and in a kind of scientific and rational explanation of the world, despite the fact that I come from the social sciences and humanities. I was introduced to Collapsology um, by some friends and family in France, and it really hit me like a ton of bricks. Uh, I knew the situation was not good. Um, I had a, my kind of <clears throat> environmental awakening. I remember specifically was the day, the night rather, that Donald Trump was elected. I really had this kind of vertigo moment of realizing we're screwed. <laughs> I think I was in a kind of denial before that of, oh, you know, Hillary will fix it, which, by the way, she totally wouldn't have because you, you can't fix this. Um, but I really had this like hard fall from the little cloud on which I was sitting. And that's where I just needed to read. I needed to understand. And luckily, um, I could read and speak French. So I, I had access. There's so many videos, so many books that these people have written. Really, they are constantly on television, on the radio, talking about these things. Uh, some of them are quite apocalyptic, like Aurélien Barraud, the astrophysicist. He really sees like end of the world type scenario. Some people like Jean Covici are more... Well, they're still very pessimistic in the sense that Jean Covici says at three degrees of warming, there's war everywhere all the time. Um, but he has actually written the plan for transforming the French economy by 2050. So he's gone out with his people in his think tank, the um, shift project. Um, 
actual sector by sector plan for transforming the economy. And they've gone out with concrete demands to the French government to say, hey, we want 20 hours of formation, which doesn't really translate into English, but it's a kind of training for all ministers and all civil servants in positions to make decisions about this. And this was then agreed upon by the government. And that's also the reason that France was one of the first countries, countries to have a citizens assembly and now a company's assembly. Um, so there's really a lot that's moving. We are able to have in France real discussions about the end of the world as we know it in a way that is just not possible in the country where I currently live and work, which is the Netherlands. It's actually quite depressing in the Netherlands that um, even something so urgent and so simple as reducing the number of cows that live in this country, which has been on the table and has been necessary for decades, but even that, even though it's screamingly urgent, even though the farmers would be compensated by the state, it's still at a stalemate. And we have the farmers that are blockading the, the motorway to The Hague, and it's it's a complete mess. The lack of... Yeah, we don't even... We don't even dare talk about the pigs. We're <laughs> 6 million Danes and 13 million pigs, not including the Danes. And, um, and, and it's not even a topic. So, uh, yeah. so I, I know what you're talking about. And it's uh, one of the things that has fascinated me about France, even with the tiny, tiny little bit of French that I do know, um, is that there is this intellectual uh, discourse in France that we do lack in the Nordics. Uh, I cannot speak for the Netherlands, um, but I also sense that there is an elitism in the French system and that may be why you can have it. Um, and so how, how many people are involved in, in this uh, discussion? You also have the, the yellow vests and uh, other farmers blocking the roads from, from time to time. Yeah, I don't want to give you the impression that, that um, France is like some kind of haven for progressive thought because it definitely isn't. Um, Emmanuel Macron is squarely a neoliberal um, technocratic president. Um, he will be dragged kicking and screaming into the transition like most other politicians in Europe. And yes, uh, you saw the scores of Marine Le Pen in the last elections. You saw the scores of the Front National or whatever it's called now um, in the in the parliamentary elections. So there's definitely this same kind of Trumpist instinct that's happening in France. But you are correct in that France has always cherished its kind of intellectual um, discourse and, sph and sphere and has never shied away from bringing difficult topics to the mainstream. And when you hear these guys, they are on the TV shows at night, they are on the radios in the morning, they really are talking about this openly. And I really wanted to share this with the Anglophone sphere, with the, the Dutch speaking sphere. But I was recently presenting Collapsology at the uh, Climate Week in The Hague, and people were so shocked. They were telling me, you are so radical compared to anything that's happening in the Netherlands. And I was saying, but these are just the facts from NASA. These are the facts from the IPCC. How is this radical? All I did was put them all in one place. <laughs> Um, but my contribution, what I really add to the Collapsology movement is the humanistic and psychological aspect because these guys in France they really lay it on thick like you know end of the world as we know it collapse of civilization energy collapse biodiversity collapse climate change and then what <laughs> 
And yeah, you, you can have a very technical sector by sector plan for changing the economy. But if you don't have educational pedagogical um, process to guide people along so that they don't fall into denial or despair, you're not really going to, to manage to take people with you. Um, and that requires some understanding also of um, some ability to jug, juggle a little bit between classes and, and how different econo socioeconomic classes think. Maybe that's very kind of classical Marxist of me, but I still think that socioeconomic class is the defining force that determines how society will react and society's resilience to what's coming. Uh, and in that sense, we need to pull ourselves out from academia, those of us who are kind of stuck in academia, pull ourselves out a little bit and see how the world works when you are not, you know, uh, and born in the early 2000s to a, a liberal Western middle class family and see that the, the world doesn't actually work that way. Uh, and that doesn't mean that working class, white working class people are less intelligent or that they are um, stubborn or whatever, but there are psychological processes in play that have to, to do also with their socioeconomic condition. Um, there's psychoanalytical forces in play that have to do with economic condition and our ability or inability to address these problems. And I think that's what I really want to contribute to collapsology is this more humanistic psychological understanding of how we can get this message to get real transformation before everything collapses in an uncontrolled manner. So if we look at those um, very intellectual, well-educated people in France and also in our own uh, societies, uh, Netherlands, Denmark, and the rest of Europe and the rest of the world for that matter, um, how do we, I mean, it is very easy for, for those of us who have a lot of education. And in my case, people have thrown education at me all my life and I tried to avoid it, <laughs> um, but uh, some of it did stick. And, um, and it is very privileged. and um i i speak from a, a country where there are resources to at least protect some of what we got uh except of course if and when everything does collapse and there's you know billions of people who may be uh losing their food security um because that th those are some of the things that are, are very rarely addressed um it, it it is very often very abstract, the way that climate change and ecological collapse is presented. And it's, um, I, I think there's a, there's a translation gap. Um, and very often I've, I've stopped talking about the environment and I talk about nature instead, because everybody knows what nature is, but not very many people relate necessarily to to uh, environment so that that's one way of, of talking about it but it's also about when we talk about climate change and like so one degree warming 1.5 degrees warming three degrees warming i guess i don't know but i guess that a lot of people think of it as oh but that's like you know in my living room when it's a little bit cold i just you know uh, turn on the radiator and, and it'll be three degrees warmer and that's nice what people don't understand or don't get is that it's actually you know a, a, an average race in nature is going to create all these uh extremes in the weather and and so um the one one aspect of education is just to get that message across the other one is of course to get 
people to see a bigger picture and to get in, in, engaged in this. And I guess that is where Apollo Fire um, comes into things. So how do how how does France handle that? Do you see any difference in the translation gap in the Netherlands? Yeah. So one of the key things that I do when I when I teach about this, I, I have a course called the Climate Crisis, which I, I teach at Erasmus University College. And when I also do my Collapsology 101 classes with various stakeholders and decision makers and things, is I present a planetary boundaries framework instead of focusing on climate change. Because climate change is just one of the planetary boundaries that we have crossed, and it's by far not the worst. <laughs> so we're all tunnel visioning on climate change, but actually the staggering scale of biodiversity collapse is really what should be terrifying us right now. Um, the fact that we have lost about what the um, I keep having to update my numbers because it gets worse every year. Four years ago, it was 60. Two years ago, it was 68. This year, it's 70 percent of animals. Uh, since the 1970s, um, so all those it's species or or biomass or what? it's uh, average population decline, 70 percent. It's about 86 percent for insects, and you and I know this, right? Because if you remember when you were younger, when you used to go for a drive in the countryside, you used to have insects all over the windshield, and now it's blank, clean. You don't even need to wash your car anymore. Um, and that happened very suddenly. You get what, you know, like these tipping points where the ecosystem just overnight for us, it would happen in 2014 at my parents' place in the countryside in France. 2013, you still had insects. And then around between 2014 and 15, the population suddenly collapsed. Um, and places that are considered biodiversity hotspots like the Amazon and the rainforest have seen a 93% collapse in populations there. Um, when we lose biodiversity, we lose the ability to produce food. <laughs> we lose the uh, resilience of systems that makes them even more vulnerable to climate change and these kinds of things. We're looking at complete oceans collapse. So oceans are one of the most vulnerable systems because um, they're prone to dead zoning, which is when the oxygen leaves the ocean as a result of either warming or because we're dumping all these nitrogen, uh, ammonia, etc., from the farmlands into the water. And that tends to kill off anything that can't swim away. Uh, the water, the, the, the animals like corals and, and shellfish that, that can't move or run away are quite sensitive to a very small one degree temperature change. So what we can already predict basically is that all the coral in the world will basically die within the next 20 years or so. Um, so the Great Barrier Reef, all of that, it's, it's uh, looking very bleak for these uh, marine animals. By 2050, if we continue on current trends, there will be more plastic than fish in the sea by weight. Uh, millions of people rely on the ocean systems in the coastal areas for food and for their livelihood. And those people will all be deprived of their livelihood uh, as and when it's no longer possible to fish or to, uh, to exploit the sea for economic purposes. Um, to make matters worse, the world's oceans are currently being 
depleted at, on an industrial scale by overfishing. And the worst culprits here are the Chinese mass fishing fleets that just go in, hoover everything in an area and move to the next, um, having depleted their own coastal waters. They're now, they were in the Galapagos, which is one of the most delicate ecosystems in the world, with this massive fishing fleet just trawling the bottom. They also destroy everything that's at the bottom of the ocean, so it can't regenerate. So they literally, it's like dropping a nuclear bomb on the bottom of the ocean, just destroy everything, move on to the next area. Uh, none of this is sustainable. And as you know full well, the problem with exponentials, as we discovered <laughs> to our uh, detriment during COVID, is that imagine that we're on an exponential curve and today we're using up half the planet. That means tomorrow we're using up the full planet and the day after we're using up two planets. There's only one problem. We don't have two planets. Um, so biodiversity loss, the collapse of ocean systems, the collapse of wilderness, there's almost uh, the amount of trees that we're, we're cutting, the amount of land that's being converted into farmland to rear, especially cattle. Uh, there, and the argument that, oh, but people need to eat doesn't really stand because, for instance, uh, a lot of the expansion, illegal logging expansion into the Amazon rainforest uh, under the Jair Bolsonaro regime was to provide leather hides for uh, the seats in SUVs. Um, SUVs being themselves one of the key uh, factors in the increase in CO2 emissions, because SUVs emit a lot of CO2, both in the production and if they're not electric, then in the consumption of fuel. And the fact is, unless you live in a mountain or in the bush, you don't need an SUV. And the vast majority of people who buy SUVs don't need SUVs, but still. Actually, they could do with a bicycle. They couldn't, yeah, the vast majority of, I see SUVs here in The Hague in the Netherlands. We have tiny, pieces of, I was like, what, what do you need? You have houses that are, you know, <laughs> uh, smaller than SUVs. We, we we have people with these Ram cars, you know, like these big things, Toyota Hilux, kind of the kind of thing I used to use in, in the humanitarian missions up in the, in the bush. <laughs> and it's, um, I laugh, but it's pretty tragic, actually. Um and if that wasn't enough, you know, the climate change and the biodiversity loss, we have also massively hit the limits on uh, chemical pollution. Uh, every human on this planet is currently contaminated with unsafe levels of um, these non-stick chemicals, what they call the, the forever chemicals, which is likely to yield increasing uh, rates of cancers, inflammation, chronic pain diseases, heart diseases. We're also ingesting plastic in uh, quantities that, well, we don't know for sure yet how bad ingesting plastic is, but... Um, Just saying the sentence, we don't know how bad ingesting plastic is, is like, <laughs> yeah. how do we get here? I mean, it, it's it's absurd. Yeah, it's like, how did we... Get <laughs> How did we get to the point where we have to ask that question? <laughs> how much plastic? I mean, do you buy the spoon? How much can you take, uh, you know, in a year? So these are the planetary boundaries. Um, and that's one thing. Some people even, you know, some people might say, well, yes, but that's the price to pay for development. And it's better to live in a completely destroyed world with no environment, with no, you know, like ingesting plastic. Technology will find ways to make us filter plastic and we'll live with these masks on our faces or whatnot. And we'll, you know, soil and green kind of world, <laughs> if you know what I'm referring to. Yeah. And that's going to be a lot of fun. 
It's, it's just at any point beating going to the beach. Absolutely. But, you know, we need to see who we're talking to. So if we're talking to my uncles, for instance, um, and they will tell you, well, you, you know, go hug your trees. Um, you know, I grew up in the factories. Uh, we're a family raised from the factories. My grandmother left school at the age of 13 to work in a cotton mill. So, you know, that's our, the industry is in our family's DNA. Um, and so we need to be able to talk to these people. And what I add to that is, okay, so even if you don't care about the insects, the bees, let's talk about concretely what impact this has on civilization, how civilization is built on these very fragile ecosystem and what that means for your precious industry, for our precious industry. Because honestly, I, I don't set myself apart from these people in the sense that I, my family hugely benefited from capitalism, from, from industry. We were raised out of the working class by industry, by corporate America. I was given an education because my father was paid by large American corporations. Um, the welfare state, everything that, um, there's no innocence possible in this regard. None of none of you aren't either. We we both are very much complicit in this system. And I don't want to be pointing fingers and to say fossil fuels are evil. Fossil fuels are, are neither, you know, they're inert. They have no no values. Uh, I would like to actually um well a little on that because you have a book coming out. Um and we're going to get into that in a moment because that's where you also start suggesting. So what can we actually do? How can we, you know, move ourselves in a, in a wise direction? But you make a really uh, interesting point that I hadn't thought of before. Uh, and as a woman, I mean, uh, it's kind of embarrassing that I hadn't because uh, our freedom and uh, ability to be involved in society and join the workforce and not spend all day at home washing, you know, dirty diapers in a, you know, boiling them and scrubbing them manually and stuff like that is really the result of the oil economy. I mean, all that labor time work hours that our grandmothers and great grandmothers, uh, because I, I bet your mother uh, didn't do it either. And definitely mine, my mom didn't either. But I mean, our grandmothers and, and great grandmothers, the, um, the, the amount of hours that they spent on things that we can fix just by, you know, pressing a few buttons on the, 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 the washing machine, the dishwasher, the, the toaster, the, the stove. I mean, there's all these little buttons that we press all day long and uh, just freed up our life to do interesting stuff like talking to each other on Zoom, for instance. Uh, which is also using electricity. I mean, so yes, we have all these amazing inventions and it has created, for at least some of us on this globe, uh, immense opportunities and, and freedoms. So uh, I'm, I'm all with you, but please explain the connection between oil and women's liberation, please. Yeah, so um, this is really how I try to communicate with the people from the working classes, the people who, not just in my own country, by the way, but um, I'm married to an Eastern European, so I also get that perspective of kind of the post-Soviet, uh, post-communist era, and I have a lot of communities and friends in, in Africa and in Asia, so um, I'm really talking from a more general perspective. Um, capitalism itself 
is only rendered possible by the quantity of energy released by fossil fuels. So you have to understand that fossil fuels, whether we're talking coal, uh, coal or oil, are actually fossilized solar energy reservoirs. Um, in the Carboniferous era, these plants were taking in all the sun through photosynthesis. They uh, died, were buried, and through millions of years of geothermal uh, force applied to them were compressed so that you have these uh, reservoirs of solar energy that are immensely dense, so extremely efficient at releasing energy. Um, there's two problems with that. One is that it took millions of years to <laughs> create these. So this is not compatible with kind of the human humanity's lifespan so that's why they're non-renewable uh there probably will be more oil in 20 million years when the whole process happens again but that's not really relevant at the scale of it will be us being <laughs> yeah it will be us that will be the oil exactly um with a good dose of plastic like the layer of plastic in the rocks <laughs> that will even come in a container it's very very <laughs> handy and um the second problem is that it releases because these were, well, as the name indicates, Carboniferous era, these were very carbon intensive uh, trees and things and, and life based on carbon that's now stored underground. So when you burn it, you release CO2 into the atmosphere. So those are the, the two major problems with that. But what happened is that when you start to burn this coal, burn oil, you were releasing uh, a energy in terms of just megawatts that was 500 times more powerful than the average human arms and legs. And so suddenly you're uh, multiplying the power, the physical power of humans by a factor of 500, which means that Today, if you leave, uh, the average human has about the equivalent of 500 mechanical slaves working for them. Um, and if you're in the West and you have quite of an energy intensive lifestyle, it's more like 1,500 or 2,000. Uh, so that means that if you were to cut off all your energy input from uh, from energy sources, you would need to have 2000 people working for you uh, to keep this going. And so I'm following Jean-Marc Jancovici in making the claim that it was the release of fossil energies and not a sudden improvement in human nature that led to the end of slavery and the emancipation of women. Because machines don't rebel, machines are cheaper to feed, machines keep going all night long so long as you just keep pouring the petrol in. Um, and indeed, my grandmother had four daughters, so she spent every Monday with laundry. Uh, the whole day, 12 hours, stirring the pot to get the blood out of the, <laughs> out of the sheets. Um, if I need to do laundry, I bung it in, press a button, it's done. Um, but that has been made possible by all of this release of energy. And what we see is that economic growth is always correlated with an increase in energy use. So this decoupling idea, the idea that we could do economic growth without also increasing the energy use, that's just, that's not a thing. <laughs> it's never actually happened. We've had in some places a decrease in the energy intensity of growth, 
but only in specific geographic areas. So, for instance, the European Union has decreased its the energy intensity of its GDP growth. But that's because it's exported all of its manufacturing to other parts of the world, such that the sum total is still an increase in the amount of energy used. Um, and why can we not just click a finger and replace all this oil, coal, gas with solar and wind and hydro? Well, currently, solar, wind and hydro account for 10% of all energy use worldwide. 70% of the world's energy use is fossil fuels. Um, and coal still plays quite a large role in that, especially in India and China. Uh, the problem is a concept called energy return on energy investment. Back in the old days, you dug a hole and psh, oil came out and you would need one barrel of oil in order to get 100 barrels of oil out. So the energy return is one to 100. Now, Today, with fracking and that kind of thing, it's ridiculously low. Uh, with conventional oil these days, we're at somewhere, I have the numbers in my book, but uh, we're somewhere around uh, 11 to 1, something like that. Um, with fracking, sometimes it's even negative. Like fr Fracking actually uh, works at a loss. <laughs> tar sands, even worse. The, the return on tar sands is extremely poor. And you have added problems with these non-conventional sources. They You have methane that comes out. So one of the reasons, methane is a greenhouse gas that's significantly more potent than CO2 in warming up the atmosphere. And one of the main sources of increase in methane in the atmosphere in the last 10 years has been American fracking. Uh, so it's not just the cows, because <laughs> cows emit a lot of methane, but it's the fracking. So our digging for more oil is causing more than just the release of the CO2 from burning that oil. It's also the release of the methane from just fetching it from the ground. Um, but it has a very poor return on investment. And uh, solar, something like two to one, it's improving them, but there are limits in terms of physics. Why? Because solar energy is actually very diffuse. And there's, a, there's a lot of it and it's free, but it's like spread out. So you need a lot of solar panels to gather all that energy and, and transform it into something useful. Um, and to create all these apparatus to gather all this energy. So this was done for free by nature for over millions of years by just condensing it under earth and crushing it. Um, well, we actually have to go and get all these metals and this copper. And so if tomorrow all French uh, thermal cars were replaced with electric cars, France would be using 20% of the world's copper supply. So tell me how we're all going to go and have electric cars. <laughs> I'd like to hear it. We're at uh, peak copper. We're about five years away from peak copper. <clears throat> so, I mean, these, these are, these are, this is the situation we're in. And now, Jeannie, what is, what are we going to do about it? Um, because that is where we where we have Frere, that's where we have pedagogics, that's where we have uh, your karate girls um, and and your book. So uh, so what what's the plan? How do we get out of this mess? Or how much of, of the mess can we get out of? So what I've done is to add a step in between diagnosing the problem. Because in the actual diagnosis of the problem, I follow very closely the collapsologists and I add a smattering of political economy in there, you know, some John Stuart Mill for good measure, uh, <laughs> to explain how we got to this idea that we need eternal economic growth. Um, 
But what I really add is an extra step between that and going straight to a solution, which is understanding why we are so bad at apprehending this, why supposedly a homo sapiens, the, the knowing person is so bad at knowing and uh, grasping this. So I've, I've made a huge effort to, through my own research, through my own academic research, to try and understand um, what the, the psychological barriers, the holdups are. And I know there's been a lot of research done in that regard in the cognitive paradigm, but I've tried to step away from this and to really try and understand this as a as a psychoanalytic and a existential problem. Uh, and again, here I was uh, helped in my understanding by some Danish colleagues. You know, the Danes do have very good ideas. <laughs> um, also, I read a lot of Slavoj Žižek, which I'm not sure how sensible that was, but <laughs> and, uh, for those who don't know, Slavoj Žižek is an eccentric Marxist uh, psychoanalytic uh, philosopher who writes in completely impenetrable ways <laughs> about, um, particularly his book, Living in the End Times, um, had this interesting adaptation of Kubler-Ross's cycle of grief, the denial, uh, anger, bargaining, despair, acceptance for the times that we're living in. Uh, I have personally taken a, a slightly different analysis. Uh, I tried to make an object relations theory analysis of why we're so bad at doing something about this. So object relations theory is a branch of psychoanalysis pioneered by Melanie Klein, who was uh, a children's psychoanalyst uh, shortly following Freud. Um, and her so for those who don't know psychoanalysis, the psychoanalysis 101 is that you have this conscious mind and unconscious mind, and you have these primal drives, this id, and then you have morality, this superego, and they're constantly clashing because your morality tries to hold your basic instinct drives in, in check. And then you have the pre-conscious ego that tries to arbitrate between the two. And object relations theory is this idea that the ego splits the world into good and bad objects. Uh, as children, we can't cope with how complex the world is, so we split into good and bad. So there's you start with the mother, and Melanie Klein said the mother, because the baby's no longer inside the mother, so the baby's no longer one with the mother, and then the food breast appears and disappears, and this is terribly distressing to a baby. So the baby splits this into good breast, bad breast, and the baby combines the feeling of happiness, the feeling of contentment with good breast, so good inside equals good outside, and the feeling of despair, anger, etc., bad inside, bad outside. So it's kind of a split where the good parts of the self are combined with the outside world and same. Um, and normally we're supposed to grow out of this. <laughs> so that's what's called a paranoid schizoid position. And we're supposed to grow out of this and realize that the world is not black and white, that it's more ambivalent, that um, that things are both good and bad, and that the internal is separate from the outside world and objects. And I came to the realization, particularly when I looked at the reaction of my students to learning about collapse in my class, that I think we are unable to differentiate the outside world from our inner world. So we are collectively stuck in this paranoid schizoid position. I think 
that we have divided the world into a good mother and a bad mother. So my theory is that uh, good mother nature is portrayed as this like innocent, fragile, uh, benevolent, uh, weak a creature that we have to protect. And then there's the bad mother earth that's responsible for hurricanes and earthquakes. And she's um, in our kind of psychotic mind, it's like a, a sexually promiscuous, uh, a rampaging out of control, bad mother. And we've split our good instincts, our protective instincts, our altruistic instincts into the good mother image and our narcissistic, destructive, um, consumerist instincts with the bad mother. And that generates a real conflict. Like I even get students who come into my class after taking my class and say they express suicide ideation when, when they hear about collapse. And I suspect that actually what they're trying to do is to kill the bad mother so are you are you saying that the way that we react to to this reality uh is that there i mean we we hear about all the bad stuff and we hear about uh or we go out into nature and feel it's nice being there and then a lot of people uh as individuals but also we as a as a culture as a collective do not distinguish between what is out there and creates the experience and what is actually the experience inside ourselves. So that we kind of think that the that nature, whether it's good or bad, is the experience inside us. That that the the ability to sort of detach ourselves from the, the bad sides of nature and the good sides of nature and the, I mean, to, to sort of, you know. Go to a meta level and and look at both of them in a in a detached uh, manner and say I I I will allow myself to be affected by it or I won't allow myself to be affected by it and then I will then I'll make decisions and interact with nature in either sustainable or non sustainable ways. I mean, is is that what you're saying? Yeah, we've we we are we are so invested into this uh, relationship with nature as kind of a split object. So there are two natures that we can no longer differentiate ourselves and our experiences of it from the actual, ob from the actual outside, what is going on, what is happening. That in fact, there are not two natures. There is one nature and it has, uh, it's an ambivalent, messy kind of force. Uh, but what happens is what I find interesting is our reaction to this split. And here um, I developed the or borrowed the concept of uh, grandiose narcissistic delusions. And I point particularly to cowboy billionaires as the kind of ultimate form of this grandiose narcissistic delusion. Um, here are men, men, and they're all men, who... Uh, have these uh, delusions of omnipotence, this kind of godlike fantasy. Um, and they're all trying to send themselves up in space to literally be able to, to swallow the world whole from the vantage point of their, when, not to mention the peculiar shape of some of their spaceships. <laughs> I was just about to say something like that, but I, I did, but thank you for bringing it up. Um, and from a, a psychoanalytic perspective, you, you could say they are reenacting the omnipotent father who seeks to destroy the bad mother, to subdue, to literally uh, 
tame the bad mother with uh, phallic techno magic. Um, uh, and the rest of us are willing to entertain this fantasy and not snap out of this delusion because I think we are in the mode of engagement that the psychoanalyst Wilfred Bayon called um, basic assumption leadership group. That is, instead of doing hard work together to try and save ourselves from this mess that we've created, we're preferring to entertain the fantasy that the cowboy billionaires will, uh, as magnificent leaders, lead us like a messiah out of this situation. Um, and I think this was beautifully portrayed in the film Don't Look Up. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but the, the character of the techno tech billionaire was absolutely spot on. <laughs> this this is kind of this our, is a recommended recommendation to everybody for for watching. Definitely. If you haven't seen Don't Look Up, go and watch Don't Look Up. Uh, it's the best film ever made about climate denial without ever mentioning climate change. <laughs> um, and then there's a second reaction, which is unresolved grief or unresolved mourning. I would like to go back to the to the uh, the, the techno uh, phallic um, <laughs> magic here. So one thing that that they I guess provide is hope. It's false hope, but it, there there is a a sense of hope because those guys have they're very successful within the existing system, which is the capitalist system, which is the system that consumes a lot of of the fossil fuel and that stored solar energy. Um, so within a certain kind of system, they are extremely successful, uh, not just because they're good at what they're doing and the way that they're doing it, but also because we, the rest of us, define what they're doing as success. I mean, we could actually have a different criteria for what is a good thing to do with your life and what, what does success look like? And they would actually fail uh, so we've created a, a concept of success and we created a system within which you can produce that and they've succeeded at, at both of them. So we could change the system, we could change the concept of success. Uh, but but until we've done that, um, they do provide a sense of hope within the system that we know because they don't want to change the system. But it's an inauthentic hope. Um, and that, I think, brings me to like talking about authenticity. And the reason that I wanted to move beyond psychoanalysis is because I, I while I think that it provides really good insight for our inability to act, I didn't think that it provided a good foundation for how we move beyond that and how we can understand the human condition under these conditions um, of collapse. And the... The real core of the issue, I think, is that collapse, whether it's controlled demolition, which would be the wisest choice we have available to us now, would be to all agree collectively to dismantle the system, even though it will be extremely painful, extremely unpleasant. Lots of people will lose lots of things. Uh, life, as we know, will have to end one way or another. But if we don't do that, the other alternative is uncontrolled collapse. Um, and controlled demolition is significantly preferable, but it's also unimaginable. But then again, both of them are unimaginable. And yet life cannot, we know that life cannot continue. Like physics tells us that life as we know it ends sometime between now and in the next 10 to 15 years. Uh, so how we think about this or how we can apprehend this, and this is where Paulo Freire and Simone de Beauvoir come in, 
we know what are the the subconscious psychoanalytic mechanisms that mean that we cannot act so what could be the psycho uh, the psychological mechanisms by which we can act and this is where i think it's very handy to reconnect with the core human fear the core human condition that is death we are going to die you're going to die i'm going to die this is known from the moment that you're born that every human who was ever born will has died or will die this is within a hundred years none of us living here don't let elon musk or anybody tell you any different we're all going to be dead in a hundred years that's just the way it is um but what musk and company have promoted is this idea of what uh, Becker called immortality projects. The idea that we can defy death while well, they're trying to do it literally by, I don't know, freezing bodies. There are actually people who get themselves cryo frozen these days and all you're going to end up with is when collapse happens is a lot of melted bodies that <laughs> relish the image. <laughs> uh, but the fear of finitude is something quite um it's always been there for humans and for a very long time we used religion as a, as a means to overcome that fear and now we have a very tricky situation of a mostly godless society confronting its own demise and that is a pretty terrifying thought um the thing is we used to be able to transcend death by having children by writing books, <laughs> by uh, building companies, um, building houses or whatever. You used to be able to, to, the idea is you leave a legacy so that if people remember you, uh, you can keep on living after your death. So it's a way of cheating death. And it, I think social media, the power of social media is that in a way it has given us all the opportunity to create these mini immortality projects. Um but at the same time, we know that if someone pulls the plug on the internet, that's the digital memory of billions of people gone overnight. Um, and then you have climate change and the seas will will rise and the forests will burn and uh, all our delusions of immortality will be taken away with that. And that's a pretty terrifying thought, but it's also the opportunity to reconnect with the real meaning of human existence and uh what i found was missing in paul frere what, what i couldn't understand is how he got to the conclusion that love was the heart of the human condition because he cites marx to uh explain his kind of economic and and his definition of oppression and that's fine but I don't know if you've read Marx, there's not much mention of love in Marx. And then he cites Irish Fromm and Paul Frère, uh, um, Jean-Paul Sartre. And Sartre was a major misogynist, a narcissist, and uh, not exactly someone that you associate with love. And I had this realization a couple of years ago. I was like, damn, Frère had the wrong existentialist. What he should have said is Simone de Beauvoir. Um, because actually this book here, I always keep it within... Uh, range it's uh in french pour une morale de l'ambiguïté in english the ethics of ambiguity and in the ethics of ambiguity simon de beauvoir explains that the existential condition isn't nothingness which that's the classic existential canon existence precedes essence your consciousness is nothing you have this radical freedom and it's radically anxiety inducing to realize that you are 
basically nothing. And Simone de Beauvoir disagreed with that and said, actually, the human condition is ambiguous because in the moment, in the present moment, it's true that I am nothing, but I have the power to project into the future and to want something. And it's that wanting something, that meaning that we can give to life, that we have the choice to throw ourselves towards a future with meaning. That's really the essence of the human condition. Um, but it's not a meaning we can define by ourselves on our own. So we cannot be fulfilled by narcissism. And her conclusion was, it's an existential human necessity to have other people around you who are also capable of having that same projection into the future for their own projects. So not this kind of collective uh, collective ego or whatever, but no, each one of us radically different and radically free to make these, these projects. And so the condition of living meaningfully as a human is a love, generous love, which is not you know, falling in love with a soulmate or whatever, <laughs> because that's obsessive possessive love. And in that kind of love, you essentialize someone, which is, again, a way to not be free. So instead, she advocated liberation as the, the key to love. And she herself, as you probably know, was a committed feminist. She supported women freedom fighters in the Algerian war. So she was on the side of freedom in that regard. Now, she did make some seriously questionable choices in her own early love life, especially. Um, with regards to, uh, so she she was one of the the, the pioneers of what she, these days I guess you would call polyamory, but she wasn't very ethical about it in the early days, in the sense that she had relationships with some of her students that were um, questionable by the standards of those days, but I think still also by the standards of today. But she actually wrote the ped, um, the ethics of ambiguity as a kind of um, penitence I suppose penance for her past transgressions and she wrote right this is actually what ethics looks like let's try and do better and so that is don't do as I do do as I say don't do as I do she actually but Simone de Beauvoir was someone who wrote philosophy as as a way to live so she was someone who didn't write philosophy in a kind of more intellectual exercise but really uh, she was committed in praxis and I think that's what really ties her to Paula Freire is this relationship between writing and doing. And this is also something that's very meaningful for me in the way that I try to always be in a learning process, um, including learning this generous love. It didn't come naturally to me. It doesn't come naturally to me. I actually find it exceedingly difficult. Um, probably also with this Christian background, you know, love is something God has a lot of and the rest of us mere mortals <laughs> have to make do with uh, whatever's left. Um, but it is a very important praxis to try and, and live that through the work that I do with uh, with my colleagues, the awesome, fantastic women that I work with at the Fair Fight Foundation, with my colleagues, with my students. It's not definitely not easy every day. And one of the key things I work on in my book is not falling into the trap of perfect solidarities or seeking some of the things the social justice movements are doing today, I find incredibly self-destructive. But like this is the basis of the pedagogies of collapse and how we get out of this mess is recognizing the need for a meaningful life with generous love as the basis for 
moving forward. And the, the, the basis of an education of collapse, the basis of a pedagogy of collapse is one that recognizes the traumatic nature of what we're living through and pushes through it with that generous love. Solidarity. Cool. So I would like to, to add two things here. One is my, my personal experience with, with teaching and also what we do in, in Nordic building and creating all this uh, building and outreach to the world and talking to you and trying to figure out from our end of things, how can we contribute to a wiser world, a building world, uh, you know, draw on the best from our traditions and create a meaningful future for all. Um, and, and what I have discovered both practically, you know, teaching kids in, in a classroom, but also when we try to host events and then bring people together is that, um, I mean, the, the core, the, the first principle is that you actually care about the people who are there um, and that, that you connect and that you, um, yeah, that, that you love um and and that you care about people and because i mean if you don't what's the point uh then then it becomes a an empty agenda but you or a shallow agenda or a, a, a you know pretense um so so i think the the word love here is absolutely crucial um in one of the previous episodes i i talked to zach stein um and i don't know if you're familiar with him um but he talks about bringing you know, bridging the generational gap, because that's one of the things that has been broken with, with social media and the technologies. We have generations who simply do not live in the same reality and have the same frames of reference. Um, and then we're all in the same mess and, and one generation created the mess and another generation will have to live with it. Um, and he talks about, you know, creating, I mean, first of all, asking the very fundamental question, why educate? What are we educating for? Particularly if we do not have a job market that, that looks the way that our current school systems have been set up to educate, uh, to produce uh, an employable workforce. Uh, but bringing people together, the generations together, to learn from each other and to create that you know fruitful future. And he also talks about collapse. So, I mean, we're all on the same page here. Uh, but I think within the family and across generations, there really is a huge potential for, for love. Um, he also talks about that we have to reinvent or rediscover our religious language because we're so caught up in the language of economics and modernity, but everything that really matters comes from a much deeper source that is much older, the traditional society and the, and the religious heritage. And you, you brought in Catholicism so many times. So I don't know if, if we can conclude on that and maybe just a few more if, if you have some practical uh, advice uh, beyond buying your book when it's out, but uh, how do we how do we approach education as we move on here? Yeah, so that's really the core. I mean, uh, the the facts of collapse and the psychology of collapse, that's the foundation. But then the real core is how do we develop an education that is up to the task of guiding us through this through this moment in history, this this unprecedented moment in in humanity's history uh, and in the planet's history really and what i what are the core principles of, of pedagogies of collapse the first principle is that education is in a dialogue it's in a, a dialogue with reality with the world as it is so we're stepping away from 
as you said, the neoliberal education framework, which is to create an employable force, which is uh, kind of regimented like a factory with efficiency, etc. But we all kind of know why it was set up, what purpose it serves, but it's fundamentally in denial about the nature of reality, which then creates an education of despair, which we also talked about in the last uh, global building event, which is teachers leaving en masse and, and students being depressed, etc. Now, the, the classic critical pedagogy approach is this, this idea of, of progress, this idea of, of a constant revolution that the arc of history bends in a certain way and it bends towards justice and we have to keep fighting against oppression, etc. But that pedagogy was developed for a time where progress, material progress was possible. Um, that time has closed now so that we are going to go into and at least in material conditions into collapse and that means the first principle is that education has to be in constant dialogue with the reality of the situation out there so there has to be a constant dialogue between um, for instance a united nations report published last week says we basically can no longer meet 1.5 degrees uh, of warming Okay, so now we need to readjust everything we do in education to adjust to that, to the, the closing windows, uh, the, the collapsing wave of probability of how the world is. And that means you have to have a very flexible, student-centered, uh, not a content-centered program. Because if you've based your entire economics, say, or something on the concept of a stable world and overnight, oh, reality's changed, we have to change everything, uh, you need to have a, a kind of elastic education that's capable of responding to the closing windows of probability around us and to, at the same time, envisage different scenarios. So the all the subjects, whether we're talking life sciences, economics, uh, business, humanities, psychology, social sciences, all of that has to have within it the capacity to respond to the different scenarios that we're in. And I think one of the, the key ways to do that is to build an education that is where the classroom is constantly looking outside so that the classroom isn't the knowledge transfer place, but that it is a place where you learn the key skills that will determine whether we survive or not what's coming. And those skills, the, the key, key element will be, can we create solidarities? Yes or no. We're not going to survive this with rugged individualism. We're just not. There are billionaires building bunkers out in New Zealand right now, but like, what's life going to be like for them? You know, stuck in their bunker thinking whether their private armies are going to rebel against them or not. That's not a life worth living. Um, or life on Mars. <laughs> yeah, or that. Uh, yeah, you know, there's, a, there's another planet that we could terraform. How about Earth? <laughs> um, it might be cheaper. <laughs> so the real thorny question is how do we build solidarity as an educational principle? Uh, and particularly looking at this from the perspective of kind of the, the Western European Nordic uh, classroom, which is where I teach, which is where you teach. 
there are interesting reactions. There's kind of that core individualism that has been embedded into students from the, the moment they were born. They've known nothing else their whole life because individualism is, is fine when you have 500 mechanical slaves working for you. You don't need other people. Um, and on the other hand, we have this counter reaction, which is the social justice movements that fragment the uh, possibility for solidarity into smaller and smaller and smaller groups. So, you know, there's Black Lives Matter, and then there's the trans and, and queer uh, movements, and um, then there's the, the advocates for uh, Muslims that, uh, for instance, we have a large Muslim population here in the Netherlands, which is not Black. And then we have a, a Black population, which is not Muslim. And then you have a uh, Black Muslims as well. And you have all these intersections. So the world is not... America is a kind of a special case because of the settler colonial nature where they uh, committed genocide against the people who were living there. And then they uh, forcibly brought over uh, African-Americans. Um, and that creates a very stratified, very the, the lines are pretty neatly divided. So you have this kind of essentialistic discourses in America, and then it gets imported over to Europe. And we think that's how the rest of the world works. But... Um, Race doesn't work the same way in Africa, as Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie pointed out um, in her book Americana. It doesn't work. My first experience of real outward, like unabashed racism was in Japan, where I was living in Japan and I walked down from my apartment onto the street and there was an anti-Korean protest in the street. And I was like, what are they doing? Oh yeah, they're protesting Koreans. That's a thing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was intense. Not to mention in India, kind of tensions between Hindus and, and Muslims. And so it's complicated. But the point is that any kind of solidarity we try to build will have to be imperfect to start with. If you start with the precept that you know, if you're if you're not um, if you're not exactly this shade of 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 this color, if you don't have exactly this or this, then you can't be part of this group, or you can never relate, or never. It's a very postmodern kind of thing, you know. Like all experiences and all truths are relative, and and we cannot understand each other across these groups. So let's all separate and kind of advocate for our own cause in our own uh, in our own way. Um, so you're actually you're actually advocating for going back to a shared humanity. Kind of, yes, but but uh, in practice, so uh, it's something that we have to build and work on. So it's going to be imperfect. It's going to be messy. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to say things that offend other people. And and you have to work with that and, and be willing to learn and grow from that. And one of the things that I really appreciate with the people that I, that I work with in my foundation, for instance, is that we are mostly willing to to learn together and like create a, a learning space where where we accept we're going to get things wrong and then you know what we pick ourselves up and we try again <laughs> i think that is uh, because we we do have to uh, to conclude this conversation i think that is a perfect place to uh, to end this um because the um the idea of perfection is actually one of the most dangerous i dangerous ideas that that we have as a species because then you have to you know cut away all the people or the you know the the mistakes that were not quite perfect so um 
allowing for uh, actual diversity and for mistakes and for for learning from from the mistakes in the process uh, and then of course creating solidarity i think that is as a beautiful um summing up also of what pedagogy uh generally has been uh, a lot of teachers who are leaving education are leaving because they can't you know actually get to work with the kids who are in the classroom and they cannot get to bring them together and create that sense of belonging among among the students and i guess the same thing in in university and elsewhere so um if you have some uh, you know final remarks um let's uh conclude on that i'd like to conclude on a message for teachers because i actually wrote this book uh for teachers i mean any anyone can read it it's a general public book but i i really wanted to address a heartfelt message to teachers that was my motivating factor behind this um teachers your eyes are not deceiving you the world is actually uh on the brink of uh ending the world as you know it is about to end and you don't have to wait for your government or your school to tell you to change the way you do things or to actually address this i designed the pedagogies of collapse and i wrote this book to show you what you could do in your classroom right now to build a bridge towards this authentic and solidary education and um what i would love to generate with teachers around the world as a result of this book and as a result of these conversations is a, a dialogue about how we address trauma in the classroom the the trauma of living through the end of the world as we know it how we build solidarities how experimental pedagogies can lead us to learn to have this learning process this imperfect process experimental pedagogies are by definition uh imperfect because they're experimental and my ambition is really to create the space with teachers of the world whether they're primary secondary university vocational community schools etc i want to call teachers to the fore to have this discussion with them uh, so we can have an honest dialogue with reality and that reality it, it's definitely not looking good the the end of the world as we know it is around the corner but i want to have a dialogue about authentic hope with teachers not phallic techno magic authentic hope about how we can um how we can be the guiding lights through the the dark dark tunnel that a lot of our students are going to be walking through in the next 10 15 20 years oh thank you Jeannie. thank you for um for joining and uh, thank you for sharing your visions for education. Thank you, Lena, always a pleasure. <laughs>